VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Friday, May the 27th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's the producer, don't you know it? He's the voice on the other end of the line when you call to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. So Growlers fans will be keeping their eye on the state of Florida tonight. Growlers have got their back against the wall, down three love in their series against the Florida Everblades, so go get them, Growlers. Let's check in over in Finland at the Men's World Ice Hockey Championships. Dawson Mercer on Team Canada. Yesterday against the Swedes in the quarterfinal, down 3 nothing going into the third period. Although they were kind of sticking it to the Swedes a little bit, they roar back to win 4-3 in overtime. They get the Czechs in the semis, and the other semis, the host Finland versus the USA. So that was quite a win for Team Canada yesterday. Also yesterday on the show, we talked about the fact that there was a lot of controversy swirling around uh, the fact that Team Canada Soccer had invited Iran to come to Vancouver in June to play in a friendly and paid them $400,000 to do so. And, of course, the controversy stems from the fact that the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps shot down flight P-5752, killing all 176 passengers and crew on board, including 85 Canadians and permanent residents. Team Canada Soccer has thought better of it now, and they say they will try to do better moving forward. They've canceled the game. The right decision, obviously, to say the least. Oh, back to the hockey for a sec. A lot of Battle of Alberta fans here, Oilers fans, Flames fans kicking around. So the Oilers, I mean, they are flying. They come back yesterday to uh, to beat Calgary 5-4. And what do you know? The studs pick it up when the game is on the line. Connor McDavid scores the winner in overtime. Leon Dreisaitl had four assists yesterday. That's his fifth straight game registering three points or more. There was one 71-second span in that game yesterday, or last night, which kept me up. Uh, 71 seconds, four goals scored. So it was a bit of a burn burner out in the burn country in the province of Alberta. Okay, what's this scribble? Oh, yeah, good on the folks out at Marble Mountain to, you know, put their heads together to try to come up with ways, which we know has been the holdback for even the private sector to want to respond to the provincial governments, want to offload responsibility from Marble Mountain and the subsidy. So they're going to be doing a few things. They're opening up what they call Bishop's Tavern over the winter. The um, marketing manager, man named Dustin Parsons, I'm pretty sure. Big announcement made with uh, Greg Smith, I heard in the morning show. On Canada Day, they're going to have the Fables and Classified kick off a big concert. So making every effort to make Marble a little bit more attractive for year-round operations. And they've had a couple of tough ski seasons in a row, to say the least. Oh, here comes the summer, and golf courses are open. Just for the golf fans, and there's lots of golf fans around here. So the number one lady in the world is a lady named Jin Jin Young Ko. She's a terrific player. She's got an unbeatable swing. Here's just some for context. For those people who play a bit of amateur golf, hitting a few greens in regulation in a row, you're having a good ball striking day. She hit just this record, 66 greens in a row in regulation. For context, up against some notable males, the longest streaks by some of these PGA Tour players, the great Tiger Woods, his, uh, his maximum number, 37, compared to her 66. Justin Thomas, the most recent PGA champion, 31. Colin Morikawa, top three player in the world, 28. 
Hideki Matsuyama, Masters Champion, 28. Will Zalatoris, up-and-coming stud who just lost to Thomas and Flaff, 19. She had 66 in a row. How about that? Okay, moving on. So, interesting one. Today in history, 1937, the Golden Gate Bridge opened up to pedestrian traffic. If you've ever been in the Bay Area, it's quite a sight to behold, the Golden Gate Bridge. Pretty significant toll to cross it as in a, in a vehicle. And we don't have more so with us any longer to promote and to provoke conversation regarding the fixed link. So, you know, the federal liberals say it's on their infrastructure radar. They've handed it over to, for further consideration to the, what is a flop at this moment, the Infrastructure Bank of Canada. But if you want to talk about that, we can do it. And growing season, of course, is upon us. It was today in 1907 that Rachel Carson was born. She's an ecologist and author of the best-selling book in 1962 about the dangers of pesticides. It's called A Silent Spring. Certainly one of the most influential books in the modern environmental movement. She was born today in Pennsylvania, 1907. And let's talk a bit about growing stuff. I know that people are loath to see government money going out the door towards businesses. If your model can't stand on its own two feet, you know the rest of that sentence. We have a serious issue regarding food, security, reliability, access, and cost. Some of the province's farms may indeed struggle this year with the explosion in the cost of feed, fuel, and fertilizer. There's also a real uh, unbelievable status regarding the number of farms and the average age of people who are working on these farms. So when the census was first taken in 1951, when we joined Canada, there was no fewer than 3,626 farms in Newfoundland and Labrador. One of those farms was my grandfather, Steve Neri. In 2016, the number was down to 407 farms. Ten years prior, there was 558 farms. So we have the fewest number of farms in any province in the country, and some of them may indeed struggle this year. So where the answer lies, I don't know. The government has made some moves to try to increase the access to agricultural land and some programs, the 64,000 additional uh, farmland hectares that have been released for potential opportunities. There is a mentorship program to match new farmers with veterans, plans to train new agricultural technologists. There's a real good innovative program and project with the Association for New Canadians, or of New Canadians, to bring newcomers into growing food, working on the farms. Okay, and then you talk about some of the industries which were the backbone of the province. The fishery, both the uh, offshore and inshore harvesters, and of course the processing sector, and yes, farming. Back in 2016, the numbers were the average age of a farmer here was 55.8 years. So retirement's in the offing. Don't know how attractive it is for younger people to get into farming, even though it's a really rewarding and satisfying industry to be involved with. So whether you look at the, the young Chris Orms or Mark Wilsons or Jason Bull and others, and young Neri down there who's got the hydroponic operation going, if you want to talk about agriculture, and one of those farmers who might be listening today, whether it be about the issues that you're facing this year with cost, how we can increase production, some of the things that you think might be of help, and yes, the new advanced technologies about some of the greenhouses that we should pepper the landscape with, just in my personal opinion. <sighs> okay. People are struggling, right? And there's lots of different reasons why. And there, the, the struggles manifest themselves in different areas of concern for different Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. We were told that when the five-point plan was released, even though three of them had to do with people who were actually struggling, two not so much. You know, increase subsidies to purchase electric vehicle or move your home heating from oil to electric. You know those deals. Yesterday, there was another $80 million worth of cost of living measures, mitigation measures. All right. The big focus has been on gas. It's out of control. So the province has slashed 50% of its tax 
on gasoline and diesel. So that's about eight cents on gasoline and about seven cents on uh, diesel. It's a move look, right off the bat. It's hard to believe that anything that the government was able to or willing to or wanting to announce yesterday was going to be received as doing enough. There's a school of thought out there that says quite clearly, what can anyone expect the government to do when they're in the dire straits that they are? But other school is really quite clear and quite vocal is that, who cares about the state of the government's finances? My finances are in a shamble. I'm afraid to go fill up. I'm afraid to go to the grocery store. I'm afraid to open up the mailbox. The government must do something. So they've made a move on the gas tax. All right. It's got to be approved in the House of Assembly and then over to the Public Utilities Board. The legislation will be put forward on Monday. I can't imagine it won't pass. I'm still a bit confused about how we weren't able to do anything about taxes on gas because of our bilateral agreement with the federal government regarding carbon tax. So I guess whatever that backstop issue has been dealt with and the government was able to make this particular move. All right. There's also a one-time home heating supplement for families. Only if you heat your home with furnace oil. Families with a net household income under $100,000, a one-time payment of $500. Families with an income of between $100,000 and $150,000 will get a payment between $200 and $500. All right. There's an awful lot of people out there who heat their homes with electricity. No measures other than gasoline, diesel have been mentioned to deal with that particular segment of society. And the minimum wage. Okay. The fight for 15 is as old as 2009. The inflationary pressure since 2009 have increased some 40%. So people who are advocates on that front have been fighting the good fight since 2009. So the province has now said the minimum wage will rise to $15 by the end of 2023. The reaction will be swift is that it is not a livable wage. The question becomes, is minimum wage intended to and is it able to be a livable wage? The most recent view given regarding living in the city of St. John's is that you needed the minimum wage to be in and around $18.25, if I remember correctly. And that's nowhere close. The arguments are clear, right? Well, actually, let me take that back. They're not that clear. Making minimum wage working for a small business, the so-called mom-and-pop shop, is vastly different than making minimum wage working for a major corporation or a multinational. So it's not a one-size-fits-all conversation, just from where I sit. There is also important recognition that the businesses that are struggling because we are all without a lot of you know, extra cash to do a bit of the luxuries of life to maybe go to a restaurant or go to wh do whatever, so people are being very thrifty. So we have to be mindful of that when we talk about minimum wage. Because increased costs for the business owner with less revenue coming in the door is not a very healthy recipe for profitability or sustainability. That said, there's a Canadian named David Kurtz. He did extensive research into minimum wage, won a Nobel Prize for it, that dismisses some of the doom and gloom that some people argue when we talk minimum wage. But again, Working for a five-person outfit making minimum wage versus working for a company that has tens of thousands of employees working in little shops all over the entire landscape of the country and world, they're two different conversations. But the minimum wage is now scheduled to hike to 15. Will that be something that can keep the wolf away from the door? No. 
But again, to the on-level playing field regarding the minimum wage, and look, I even talk about guaranteed basic income. You know, the social determinants of health, money in people's pocket, is probably the biggest thing we all talk about, whether it be level of taxation, job opportunities, scheduled pay hikes, minimum wage, all of those things. It's also different if I earn minimum wage, but I live at home. I'm a young person versus a single mother of two children making minimum wage. So that's where the conversation becomes a bit of a struggle for me because if we just pretend that minimum wage is a one thing that impacts everyone the same way, we're probably missing part of the conversation. But I know we're going to get some calls on cost of living issues that were broached by the government yesterday. And before, like I knew the news conference was coming up, and I didn't know what they were going to announce, but I knew full well the reaction would be not enough. And the people, whoever the middle class is these days, which I'm not really sure who they are, I think I'm probably in it, not a whole lot there other than a bit of relief at the pump, right? So I understand. We're going to have some debate and discussion on it, and we can do exactly that today. We'll talk about the price of gas. Now that the price, and diesel, the price fees, freeze is over in much parts of Labrador, you know, there are ice-bound areas where they just can't get the tankers to, and so there's a freeze price. They get the uh, fuel delivered, and it's held at those numbers, and that began in November. Now that that's been lifted, get a load of this. 69, uh, 69, increase, 69 cent increase, pardon me, in gas prices in parts of Labrador. $1.11 jump in diesel prices. 97 cents in stove oil. These are zones 10, 11, and 11B. So not everywhere has seen that impact, but holy smokes, man. All right, let's move on to what? So the problems yesterday, more announcements, talking about uh, the pre-kindergarten program to be launched in some 30 schools in the fall. There's going to be 600 learning spaces developed province-wide. Goal of expanding that to 3,100 by 2025. Good start, and I guess this is part and parcel with some of the move towards $10 a day daycare. I think pre-K makes sense. But we've also got to ensure that the families who have seen their older children needing daycare losing their spot or charging so much more because the subsidy for older children isn't what it is for younger children. And consequently, look, the daycares, they're in business. They're not in business just to take care of your children and lose money. So we've got to figure out these things. Regulated versus unregulated, urban versus rural, in your home or in a regulated big facility, the caliber and the training and the pay for early childhood educators, all of these things are in the envelope of $10 a day. So it's not just about that number. It's about all those other moving parts, if you want to boil it down. And the province is also talking about the ongoing effort to deal with restorative justice in the province of schools. We know we've got an issue with bullying and violence in the schools. So inside of restorative justice, it's an interesting form of dealing with any acts of whether it be pestering, bullying, or violence. All parties are invited to participate. They work towards healing what was broken, seeking in this support direct accountability, reintegrate where there has been division. So the basic three tenets are encounter, repair, and transform. It's a healthy way to go about it, and certainly something has to give. So that's going to be part of it as well. Okay. Boy, I got a lot here this morning, but I don't want to take the entire show babbling on like I usually do. All right, what's this? So we talked about the racist in the incident that we've seen and talked about in the city of St. John's. Completely unacceptable, disgraceful. We have to do better. And we have to be honest when we talk about it. The Supreme Court of Canada today is going to rule on the fate of the mosque shooter. 
That guy pled guilty to six counts of first-degree murder, six counts of attempted murder, when he attacked the worshippers at the Islamic Cultural Center on the 29th of January, 2017. This is all about the constitutionality of how long you could be in prison without being eligible for parole. Initially, the Crown was asking for no parole for 150 years, 25 years for each person that was murdered. He was sentenced to life in prison with no chance of parole for 40 years. That's the longest parole ineligibility ever imposed in Quebec. The decision was overturned in November 2020 by the Quebec Court of Appeal, which reduced the sentence for parole eligibility to 25 years. The Crown is now asking for 50 years, and the Supreme Court is set to rule on that. It'll be interesting to see, to see and if you want to take it on, we can do it. And what's this story about all these shots fired here in the city at an apartment complex, not too far away from where I'm doing the show here this morning? Dozen shots or more. So the police are called. And it took three and a half hours to respond to shots fired. And I see a call in the queue already wants to talk about that. That's remarkable. And then I hear Constable James Cadigan say that they've confiscated some 120 illegal firearms and three printing devices. So there's some sort of gun manufacturing gang operating here in the city of St. John's? Man. And then you see the story developing in the state of Texas regarding the massacre at one of their elementary schools. And the police... I mean, the police apparently, you know, they waited for a reporter services tactical unit to show up, but some individuals, Texas police officers, went into the school to save their own kid and then left the shooter in there for over 40 minutes. I mean, you know, what happened to a good guy with a gun? Anyway, that story has just been on my mind a lot. Importantly, the province is dropping their vaccine mandate for public sector workers come the 1st of June. It's not clear if it's also removing the mandate for teachers and healthcare workers. I'm just not really sure exactly who's now going to be exempt from having to have two shots on the primary series of the COVID vaccine. And that's, you know, it was always scheduled for a six-month review. All of these mandates have had sunset clauses. And I do think the federal mandate has to be addressed sooner than later. Nobody or very few are going to get ma uh, vaccinated just because the mandates are in place. The line has been drawn in the concrete. Not in the sand, it's in the concrete. So we can have that conversation as well if you're interested. Uh, what's this? Happy 98th birthday to fisheries advocate Gus Etchegary. Mr. Etchegary shares his perspective and his thoughts and his time on this program over the decades. And happy 98th to you, Mr. Etchegary. We hope you're well and enjoy your day. All right, we're on Twitter. It's so enjoyable, Twitter is. Roe VOCM Open Line follows there. Our email is openline at vocm.com. And so hopefully Mr. Etchegary has one fine day. Not exactly the sentiments of the tomb by the Chiffons when they released this single in 1963. When we come back, it's coming out with a Friday, don't you know? Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Good morning, caller. You're on the air. Hello, Patty. Hello. Good morning. Oh, wow. This is my first time on Open Line. Uh, thank you guys for taking my call. Um, yeah, I, I wanted to talk about the uh, you know shooting on Thorburn Road. Um, the 78 Thorburn Road apartment building, you know, and people uh, might recognize it as Exmouth Manor. You know, I think what it was called long ago. And uh, I know the the reports uh, are scant. You know, there's not a whole lot of coverage, it seems, about this, this really what I would describe as a horrific shooting. Well, of 100%. So you mean there's not enough media attention? Is that what you're referring to? I don't feel like there's enough media attention, and um, you know, as a tenant in that building, I don't really particularly feel like there's enough, uh, even police um, attention. 
given to this. You know, the the severity of this shooting. It seems uh, I understand that it seems like uh, violence is, you know, kind of running rampant across the city the past little while with shootings happening in Galway and Paradise and. I even saw something about NTV reporting a firebomb thrown at somebody's house even just last night. So, Well, I, uh, I tell you what, I wouldn't be so foolish as to disregard this as anything but quite serious, and we should be talking about this. I mean, uh, on the heels of the story, you hear from Constable Cadigan saying that they've confiscated over 120 illegal firearms and three printing devices, so the guns are out there, they're in the hands of the wrong people, and this example of shooting up an apartment building, and like, do we know how many shots were fired? I've heard 13. Is that the number that people are working with? Uh, well, Patty, if I were to count the bullet holes, I would easily say more than a dozen rounds were fired. Um, and right now, as of this morning, the bullet holes are still in the front door. Anybody who uh, wants to do a bit of tourism can come by 78th Thorburn Road, and that door is riddled wow. with bullets, you know. And the, the police were there all day yesterday doing their forensics. So I just worry that, uh, you know, in the case that these are such 3D printed guns, they're really not going to get much information off of those bullets. And, uh, you know, I do know they were doing some canvassing in the area, but uh, it's very concerning because residents and people that live in the neighborhood and even on Cumberland Crescent have been reporting suspicious people uh, in the area over the past couple weeks. And it just seems like, uh, you know, that was not a point of interest for the officers. I'm not sure if they, uh, you know, have been talking to anybody, but they did leave a card with me, but I haven't gotten a response now. I know the RNC people have uh, certainly qualms about them, and I'd like to think they're doing their best for, you know, to defend every citizen. But, um, you know, I also know that there is a police officer that's pretty much stationed at Andrew Fury's house like eight hours a day. And you said it earlier that it took them three and a half hours to arrive on the scene, and it took them even longer to set up a active crime scene. I don't think, and people were still coming and going um, after five hours, and maybe five hours after the shooting, which occurred around 2.30 a.m., they actually had an active crime scene up. So it really concerns me knowing that, like, in those five hours, those people easily could have came back, even in those three and a half hours before the very first officer showed up on the scene. Like, it's very concerning. You know, I really have had my sense of safety, I suppose, in what I call my home, shaken right here in the center of the city, you know. I'd be terrified. Really. I'd be absolutely terrified. And I wouldn't dare diminish your concerns because, as I, as I just said, I would be scared to death. But sometimes I, I don't think that we acknowledge the fact that police know more than people believe. And the police, you know, there's been lots of pretty major arrests here in those confiscation of guns. I'd like to think that you're on the right track with thinking that they're doing what they can. Sometimes police work is done in the quiet as opposed to in the public and investigations through the media. But regarding the media, you know, it's always a strange piece of business when they, the editors and program directors, news directors try to evaluate how to cover a story, even if we're talking about showing the pictures of uh, vehicles that have been in a collision or how to talk about these issues where if it bleeds it leads what do you think the media should be doing how should we be proceeding in your opinion on these types of matters well i honestly feel like you know raised awareness because uh, i mean i'm not sure if, if everybody around the city feels the same way but i really do feel like you know like really dangerous in gun violence and like other horrific acts of violence seem to be on the rise and you know i can only imagine you know, Patty, we all know people don't do crime just because they want to do crime. They do crime because they're desperate. They do crime because, 
you know, it's really the only way they can keep living their lifestyle, for lack of a better term. And I'm sure there are some bad actors out there who just do crime because they want to do crime. But, I mean, at this level, you know, in, in a, a, a pretty small province, I really feel like it's just people falling on hard times. And unfortunately, people like me who are just trying to live their lives have to kind of deal with the fallout of that when there's some bad actor out there and somebody wants to get... I really can't say if this was revenge motivated. It's It just seemed really targeted. And and just knowing that there were suspicious uh, characters around the neighborhood, it seems like it seems like there could have been more done to preempt this, I suppose. But um, yeah, you know, once again, I'm not a police officer, and uh, I didn't realize that some things were happening in this building or around this neighborhood until it was too late. But I don't you know, know what's going on. But it yeah, always seems and feels to me uh, when we have these types of shootings or fire bombings, I might be wrong, but I always think this is drug related because you know turf wars and these people who are you say some people are committing crimes because they're desperate. That's true, but people are in the gun manufacturing business and shooting up apartment buildings randomly in the middle of the night. This seems to me to be targeted stuff, revenge stuff, drug-driven issues mm-hmm. versus someone who's desperate and can't, you know, is afraid to go to Irving or something to fill up Very the car. Very true. This, so. this does seem organized, which which also, you know, adds to the, the fear that I, that I have, I suppose. It's like, I don't really know if there's going to be more from, from this group and where the police are really tight-lipped. It's like, how long will these people be operating, you know, here in our quiet little town? Like, I know it's St. John's, it's the capital of Newfoundland, but I feel like most people would say right here in the center of town, it's fairly quiet. I mean, we have our car crashes and uh, ambulances is, is always on Thorburn Road, but right, like Thorburn Road, right where I'm living is, is a 24-hour driven road. And for them to be so brazen to, you know, just do such a thing at 2.30, even at 2.30 in the morning, I mean, I know for a fact motorcycles, cars, ambulances zip up and down this road all hours of the night. So for them to be able to, to get away with it and, you know, even – even if they were to do that at two thirty in the morning, like was the was the nearest cop really three and a half hours away, Patty? <laughs> I'm so I'm so bl- like blown away that it took them that long to to respond to a shooting, you know, a very horrific shooting. I mean, if you saw the front door, you you definitely wouldn't walk away unscathed. And it's just so flabbergasting. It took them so long. I I'm really concerned about the you know, the response time, I suppose, because you can drive across this entire town in uh, 20 minutes. And um, that really didn't uh, put a good taste in my mouth, I suppose. Now, I'm, I don't want to slander anybody at the RNC. And I actually didn't really talk to many of the officers that were here. Um, I've been a little wary to even leave my apartment. But uh, just knowing that, you know, if that were to happen and you were an actual victim, you might not get help for three and a half hours does concern me as well. I appreciate making time, and hopefully the police are able to get to the bottom of it, whatever is the motivation. But if someone is willing to drive by and blast up an apartment building, then we all need these people off the street. You know, it's long been said that... Like the police know who people are out there. They know who they've got their eye on, and I think they probably know about, more about what's going on than we all think. But think if you rounded up the most dangerous hundred people in the city, you know, I know they backfill these positions of uh, nuisance gangsters pretty quickly. But if you rounded up the three, the hundred most dangerous, he'd probably make a big difference in public safety around here because there's got to be ringleaders that drive a lot of this stuff, and we can't be so foolish to think that there's not a significant presence of organized crime here, which makes it really complicated stuff. And I guess that's why there's been a a joint task force between 
the province, or pardon me, the RNC and the RCMP, basically on the West Coast to deal with drugs and gangs and, and violence. But we know it's out there. Let's hope they can deal with these people ASAP. Uh, I, I wish you well. Take good care of yourself. And let's hope the police are able to bring this to a resolution. Well, thank you, Patty, and I just caution everybody to keep their eyes out for anybody who uh, seems out of place, you know, somebody who uh, seems like they're doing something they shouldn't be, you know, even if you just consider them loitering, they might be actually plotting. But I uh, hope you and your listeners have a good day. You thank too. you for having me on. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye-bye. Yeah, that's a pretty wild story. Okay, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Bayvert Mining. We're going to talk about uh, blind darts, which is always a fun conversation. And then what's happening maybe south of the border. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one and say good morning to the to uh, Lloyd Hayden. He's from the Bayvert Chamber of Commerce. He's the chair of that organization. Good morning, Lloyd. You're on the air. Thank you, Patty. How are you this morning? Great today. Thank you. How about you? No, great, boy. Great Come day on. here. Uh, yeah, uh, I, you, I just wanted to tell, talk about the Bayvert Neary Chamber of Commerce. we got our, our 33rd mining, annual mining conference coming up again this year. We uh, should be the 35th, actually. We had a two-year hiatus with the with the COVID, and we just couldn't pull it off. But uh, we do have back on track again for uh, for the third and the fourth of June this year, and uh, it looks like it's going to be a success. We got about 150 people registered so far. We've added as high as 200, so it's uh, it's going to be a, a good weekend for an update on the uh, you know from business, government, the mining and geological industry, on the mining in in uh, in the peninsula and in Newfoundland and Labrador, of course. And uh, we, uh, you know, hopefully we're going to have an exciting weekend, a very informative weekend. This particular conference, if I'm not mistaken, is the largest mining conference in the province annually, isn't it? Well, the one in St. John's, the CIM, is the one that they have in the new, um, that, that's larger than this one or as large as this one because, it's, of course, it draws a bigger crowd from, from the city and things like that. We, the other problem we got is accommodation. We don't have the accommodation like sure. we do in a bigger center, right? So. There's every reason to be bullish on the mining sector here, whether it be, you know, the big deals and the flashy ones we hear about and Tesla and Northvolt AB will deal with Valet. That's all exciting for their nickel. And, you know, but expansion of gold mines, Valentine Lake and others come to mind here. There is a big operation and there's there's every reason to think that mining industry is only going to grow leaps and bounds. I think so down here as well. And, you know, like right across the province, but down here. I mean, we have uh, two mines operating down here now and and support mechanism of about 500 workers. And, uh, you know, we got, uh, we got uh, Maritime up in uh, um, Kings Point, which is only an hour away. And then you, you know, like you said, Valentine Lake, and you got Beaverbrook, and you got out in Glenwood area too. So, uh, you know, it's really we're going gung-ho. Rambler Metals and mines, they're, uh, they're, they're sure. fairly big here. And Single Gold, which was Anaconda, uh, Bailey shoreline aggregates is, you know, there's a support group of about 150, and then you got a group out of Springdale, and uh, you know, it's going to be a really good weekend, and we're going to be really, we, we got 11 presenters. Uh, they're going to do present uh, present technical papers of the different mines in, in the area, and the College North Atlantic Department of Natural Resources, the government's going to do a presentation as well, and uh, we're going to you know get some information, some updates, which is going to be really good for the industry and the mining, and the mining sector, you know, in this region, and all over, because they're coming from all over Newfoundland, and even we got some presenters from Ontario as well. So, you know, we talk about uh, tech and for post-secondary facility or organizations to make sure they're able
you're able to uh, backfill the positions that are required here. We talk about mentorship for new farmers and up and down the line. What's the government's role in expansion or making sure that the mining sector is on track to maximize its potential? Because, yes, of course, will be tech components overlap inside of mining. But what else needs to be done to ensure that it looks like an attractive place to do business for these mining giants and that the locals see the maximum benefit? Uh, I, I think government needs well, government's on side. I, I feel they are anyway, mm-hmm. and I mean, uh, uh, and, and and they got the rules and regulations and and the due diligence in place before you can open a mine. And we want to protect the environment as well. And you know, if you just can't come and open a mine and start digging and and throwing everything out in the, out in the woods as sort of they used to do. But I mean, now I you know, it's, it's due diligence, and we need their support. We need the support of the ex, uh, exploration side of it. Really important because without exploration, you know, you, you're not going to have another mine in three four or five years time so the exploration side has been really supported by government and uh, even even now, and, and they got to keep doing that the other thing is that you know we're looking at a shortage of employ employees um, and we know that there's a ukraine fa- uh, person being employed at present at the mine down here since they, they, the flight got in from over there and and i think that's going to be an, a big thing they're going to have to do too and and accommodations um, I, i'm going to throw in the road infrastructure for baby peninsula we've heard a lot about that in the past while it's uh, it's not good and with all the equipment and trucks and things that are going over we really need a good infrastructure as well you know there was a story a few weeks ago about a smaller town i want to say glenwood or maybe or appleton with yeah. a new mine close by that might even be valentine lake now that i think about it no it's not oh there's, which there's one is another it one after, yeah. <laughs> yeah there's just so much going on in my poor yeah, little brain know, so yeah. i to keep that's, it all straight good for you. so you know we accommodations becomes a big one i mean just look at what happens in lab west with the boom and bust so when times are good all of a sudden the rent is out of control people can't find a place to live maybe just maybe inside of our benefits agreements the government puts some of those issues at the top of the list you know it's not just revenue for the province to deal with some of these accommodation issues because you never know if you arrive in lab west or you arrive in glenwood or you arrive in bayvert and you have a job at the mine you might stay forever you might set up roots and so accommodations is a really big one in my personal opinion yeah it, it is and rambler has addressed that down there they got a 48-man camp set up on site which is you know anybody's coming and going they, they at least they got a place to stay uh the same thing there's another one being proposed another uh, site being proposed for another camp uh, i mean that's that's like valentine lake i i understand they got a six or seven hundred man camp being set up in valentine lake yeah so to move people in and out and, and millertown is you know is going to and buckins is going to be back on the map again and, and there's a small little processing thing in buckins as well and you know just sort of we got pockets here and we're a rich little province and and uh, we're, we're big big in, in resources i i says and uh, and i think that's what government really needs to address the you're right the uh, the accommodation side of it the employment side of it and 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 we really need to look at that too and the support for for the other support industries um, I also manage the favorite consumers co-op as well and we have 30 employees here and uh, we really need to you know we need we need some support there as well you know it's uh, and I heard you before it's just not like raising the minimum wage it's, there's other things that we need to support we don't we got no daycare here in the summer we got people not going to be able to work the summer because they got to stay and look after their kids we got no daycare yeah I mean there's just you so know. many different moving parts to ensuring right. that industries are on the path that they belong on and it's one thing to set up a work camp but can you just imagine if say Wood Valley uh, the requirement in their benefits agreement was to build 100 affordable housing units or an apartment building with 75 units so that that reverts to the government next thing you know we don't have this boom bust cycle I can't find a place to live and rent control is not available you know there's a difference with uh, working and living in a camp versus having a spot to call your own so your whole family can come with you versus your two weeks in two weeks out or whatever schedule people 
keep. But uh, good conversation. I appreciate the time, Lloyd. Good luck with the conference. Yeah, thanks very much. And like you said, there's going to be, I, I think we got 11 presenters this year. That's the most we've had. We've only, previously, we were only, only about at around eight. So we got some good presenters. There's going to be some, hopefully, be some good uh, good results come from the presentations and some good information too uh, so the waiver can grow again, right? Sounds great to me. Good having you on. Thanks a lot, buddy. Thanks, Take Lloyd. Care. Bye. That's Lloyd Hayden. He's the Bay Burt Chamber of Commerce Chair and up the upcoming Bay Burt Mining Conference. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, Charlie, you're next, and then we're going to talk da- with Dana about blind darts. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let us go. Line number two. Charlie, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I just watched uh, yesterday pictures of those uh, little children who were killed and the parents, uh, the reaction and so on. So I've got a message for uh, your American viewers, especially your American Republican viewers, especially evangelical uh, people. You can't wait till the midterms to vote Republican. It looks like they're going to be voted in as far as Congress is concerned. Well, what many can't understand, me included, is this. You've got people who say, we want more guns with this problem. Not banning guns. We want more guns. I heard Ted Cruz say that. Oh, Mr. Cruz, in his infinite wisdom, was talking about doors. Not guns, doors. I just met these people. And, you know, there's a place for conservatism in the world, no question about it. Thankfully, it hasn't gone full American Republican crazy up here in this country yet. But some of the arguments made, they're intellectually bankrupt. Going on and on and on, say you can't start with talking about the gun, but no one's ever been shot unless someone had a gun in their hand. And the issue about, you know, mental illness. We're doing so much and trying so hard to talk about mental illness, mental wellness, mental health, stigmas associated with so people don't realize when they say we've got to start talking about mental health the implication is clear they're saying that everybody who has a mental health issue is potentially a murderer a mass murderer this is a dangerous stupid conversation that we're having you know yes we can talk about it all at the same time but if you don't include the gun in the conversation then we're really not going to make any headway it'll be the the endless 250 year standoff of the second amendment the left versus the right and nothing gets done because everyone's too too obstinate in their beliefs on guns. It's just mad. There's more guns than people in the United States, right? They've had 283 mass shootings in schools since 2009. If Columbine, uh, Columbine didn't do it and Sandy Hook didn't do it and this particular school won't do it, then I don't know where we're going to go. Thankfully, it's not the conversation we uh, need to have at this point in this country. You won't even, they won't even do background checks, which 90% of Americans are in favor of, close to. The gun manufacturers and the NRA They've financed these people, so they're more interested in being financed the campaigns than they are in the lives of children. That's obvious, because it's the only reason they could ever come up with this nonsense. They say uh, mental issues, video games, everything but. They said, uh, one, one reporter said to Cruz, uh, <coughs> excuse me, he said, I thought we were an exceptional uh, nation. Uh, we're exceptional in the sense of we have the most guns uh, by far and, and the most uh, murders and so on of children and so on. And, and, and he deflected it. He said exceptionalism. People want to come here to, to our great country. Anyway, not, on, not only guns, just, just on that issue alone, if you could vote re- re- Republican and, and consider guns alone, but then, then you look at things like infrastructure. 
the bridges and roads are falling apart. They couldn't even uh, 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 get that together when, when, when they were in office. The pharmaceutical industry, they won't lower, uh, uh, get these companies to lower prices because these companies are backing them up with cash too. So you can go on and on. Tax breaks for the rich, you know? Why would anybody in their right mind, especially anybody professing a love for Jesus, as many of them do, why would they support such a bankrupt bunch of yahoos, not, not even, not only Trumpers, but, but moderate re- Republicans? I won't even get into the ab- abortion thing. So I'd like to say to them, what is it that they're voting for? Have they ever asked themselves that? They're voting against change. They really dislike the fact that before long, just based on the trajectory of different ethnics, uh, ethnicities and uh, places of origin and the belief systems, the United States is, is turning into a now what was always been a predominantly white country. It won't be too long before the majority are brown-skinned, Spanish-speaking. So they're really not big on that. Demonizing immigrants the way they do is all just really hard to watch. Look, people can be uh, ideologically on the right side of the spectrum, fiscal conservatives, social conservatives, whatever you are, but some of what goes on down there is just hard to understand. It really, truly is difficult to understand. Uh, the, the gun issue in particular brings along... I think probably the most intellectually bankrupt discussion of all time. And, you know, to pretend that, you know, the whole the well-regulated militia and stuff, oh, for God's sake, you know, and they get back to the federalism stuff and the founding fathers nonsense. Do you honestly think that the founding fathers that crafted the Constitution are in favor of what is happening in the United States today? Do they really think that that is something that would be held near and dear to the hearts of the founding fathers? School massacres to the extent that it is, mass shootings to the extent that it is. They say, well, guns aren't the problem. If you don't, if you ban guns, nothing changes. They go on with spoons and cars and pipe bombs and stuff. Okay, so I guess America, I guess maybe they're admitting the quiet part out loud is that their gun culture is completely out of control. The Dunblane shooting, right? That was it. Hasn't been a school shooting since in Scotland. Uh, what they did in Australia hasn't been. A, the numbers of uh, homicides by guns are so low compared to last year, over 38,000 in the United States. The arguments, I just don't, I, I can't even deal with it anymore. I can't watch American cable news the consumption I get enough of it on social media because it is just honestly it's just too stupid it really is just too stupid and too yeah I'll leave it at stupid a young man 18 years old can walk in and buy two assault rifles stronger than uh, more powerful weapons than they use in Vietnam and buy 300 and something odd rounds of ammunition and walk out. He can't even, he, he can't even, as far as I know, get a license or, or, or buy liquor. That's, that's, how, that's how crazy the thing is. And, and, and just the other day, they had a domestic terrorism uh, a bill in front of Congress uh, because most of the, of the, of the uh, people that die are shot by white supremacists and so on. They even blocked, Republicans even blocked that. Now, that, that, that should have been 100% on both sides, right? So, people, you're going to vote Republican? Just, just remember, what you vote shows your values. And if you want to associate with a group like that, even the moderates, at this stage of, 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 of your, uh, your history, you've got a lot to answer for, people. But you know what, Charlie? It's not about if they're completely outside with their values. It's, and I think this is part of what's happening in Canada as well. It's not about being completely aligned with your, the party you favor. It's that you hate the other side. 
That's it. Yeah. Doesn't matter. You just hate the other no. side. So you'll put up with whatever your so-called side thinks and says simply because based on your distrust, dislike, detest, hate of the other side. That's what it feels like. Most of the same thing uh, in the end, right? Anyway, anything else quickly, Charlie, before I take one more call? No, that's it, Patty. Uh, there was a sign up somewhere, if you see something, speak out. And anybody who can watch that and and uh, be able to uh, to sleep well, that's, that's anyway, thank you, Patty. Appreciate your time. Take care. Right, bye-bye. Bye, Charlie. And uh, the wisdom of this emailer says, uh, not one member of the NRA was involved in a mass shooting. And the point is what? Again, there's where the points are. People are trying to make what they think are clever points, but they make absolutely zero sense. Let's go to line number five. Dana, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Hi, Paddy. Hi there. How are you getting on? Great today, thanks. How about you? Good. It's Dana in Oxbay. Welcome to the show. I suppose I usually call us in every year to talk about in line in Max Sims camp. Oh, yes. Go right ahead. Now, this year I wants to talk. I suppose called last week because we had the uh, Atlantic Sports Week in Blind Games in St. John's last weekend. And I want to talk about different blind sports that blind people can do. Go right ahead. And I want to talk about uh, uh, Shane told me you want me to call in and talk about how, you, how, do a blind person play, how do a blind person play blind darts. Because I used to play in a dart league in Ox Bay before I had my stroke. So the way a blind person would play darts, your dart board is like a clock, like the, the 20s up at top at 12 o'clock. So you read the dart board like a clock, right? Right. So what happens when a blind person plays darts, I'm going to say, let's take a little joke first. When a blind person plays darts, you get something that you don't like by the dart board, attack, and you aim at his voice. No, I'm just kidding at that. But I see it in the way a blind person will play darts. You put your foot on the outside the toe line, then your other foot in, in the middle of the toe line. So then you know the dart board is right, right, straight, right straight in front of your toe line, mm-hmm. and in front of your toe. And, and if somebody that's six feet tall, the dart, the dart board, the bottom of the dart board is about, about the bottom to your chin, and the top of the dart board is about to the top of your forehead. Got it. That's, so that's how a blind person will play darts. Fabulous. And also, Patty, before I go, there's a lot of different blind things that a blind person can get involved with. There's a lot of blind sports. So if anybody wants to get in touch in St. John's in your local area, they can give Shane Cash a call at 682-1710, and he will get you in touch with the right people to get involved and get, get, get active in blind sports. Because there's a, the problem is at CCB now, there's a lot of older members, and we're trying to look for some new, some younger members to get involved. Because there is a lot of different sports that people with disabilities can get involved with, right? Absolutely. We were happy to have Shane on before and after this most recent event to talk about what the opportunities were for a blind uh, people to come out and, you know, for the first time maybe experience yeah. a game of darts or anything else under the sun. Yeah. We used to have Don Connolly on the show all the time to talk about these types of events. So yeah. I'm glad it went yeah. well. It seems like it was a roaring success. Yeah, because I used to play a sport called goalball Go when I lived in Nova Scotia. Mm-hmm. And goalball is, is actually in the Paralympics, right? And unfortunately, Newfoundland used to have a goalball team, but, um, but where there's no younger people involved, now we don't have a goalball team no more. What's, a, what's goalball? Describe it to me. Goalball is a sport that you got a ball with a, with the size of a basketball, and I got bills inside of it, and you listen for the bills, you listen for the ball, and the, and the net, the net is a bit side, the bit the width of a gym court, and on the floor there's tape where you can feel. 
and you got to you got to throw the ball like on the floor like I'm like you're bowling, so the ball got to be rolling. And, but you got to stay back by your own net, and you got to try scoring to the net. And so the ball is filled with like ball, ball bearings or something, so you could hear it coming. Yeah, it's got bills inside the oh, okay. inside the ball. Yeah, very yeah. good. And I, I played that for 20 years, and I went all over Canada and states, and I always made the Nova Scotia Olympic team, right? That's fantastic, Dan. I'm glad you called this morning. Anything else before we go? No, but like I said, if anyone wants to get involved with CCB and St. John's, give Shane a call, and he's listening. And, and he can get you in touch with because, I mean, we're looking for a lot. We're trying to get some new, younger members to get, get involved because a lot of us are we're all getting older, see, Patty. I appreciate you making time, Dana. Good to have I you on. Pay, God bless and take care and stay safe. You can take care of yourself, Thanks too. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Bye-bye. All right, uh, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Mike Powell's there from Fort Amherst Healthcare. They've got a walk in support of raising awareness and maybe some funds for Alzheimer's. And then we're going to talk about the most recent whistleblowers report, and then we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number four. Say good morning to the independent member of the House of Assembly, uh, Mount Pearl Southlands. That's Paul Lane. Paul, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Yes, sir. Uh, Patty, before I get to my topic, two uh, quick things. Uh, number one, just want to congratulate all of the uh, nominees and winners at last night's Mount Pearl Focus on Youth Awards. And uh, we certainly have a lot to be proud of in our community when it comes to our young people. And uh, also thank you to you because uh, you actually had a presence uh, at, at the event last night. Not a physical one, but... Uh, you were uh, you were the voice of Stingray in uh, in, in announcing the uh, um, all the nominees. So uh, I was happy uh, to do it. Myself and Greg Smith uh, split the uh, voiceovers for the bios, uh, yeah. and as I read through them, man, some impressive young people out there winning those awards. So bravo to all involved. Absolutely unbelievable, and it's amazing when you see uh, some of these young people who are. You know that have you know like 90 97 98 average and at the same time they're like captain of the hockey team and they can also sing and they're in in you know doing uh you know visual arts and everything else all at the same time robotics everything is just amazing with some of these kids and what they can achieve it's, it's, it's awesome yeah and what they're doing in the community is just great stuff absolutely it is it's yeah. fantastic the other quick thing I just wanted to put out there, I don't know if anyone had called and made you aware. I wasn't aware until someone brought to my attention. But when government brought forward this, um, in their five-point plan, this $5,000 um, grant, I guess, uh, to convert from uh, oil to electricity, uh, when you look at the things that are qualified um, for the program, uh, if you look at it, will say that you can get these... Um, Heat pumps is something that can qualify. And then in brackets, it says recommended. It says recommended that uh, you also uh, have baseboard heat, but it doesn't say that you require it in order to get the funding. Uh, so I had someone contact me who said they were going to go with, uh, they were going to take out their oil furnace and they were going to put in um, heat pumps. Um, and that's what they were going to do. But when they happened to contact your insurance company, the insurance company said you also require uh, to have uh, electric heaters in your house and heat pumps can be a supplement because heat pumps can break down. And if that happened in the middle of the winter, you could do damage to your home. So we would not cover you under the insurance. So 
I don't know if anyone had raised that before. It's the first I had heard of it, but it is something for people to keep in mind. Yeah, we walked through it. It's not, yep. it's, it's not a. Uh, it's not considered a primary uh, heat pump. Is not considered a primary source. I think is what they say. Okay. Yeah, pretty much. We've walked through that here on the show a couple of times just so people are uh, up to date, you know, whether it be with heat yep. pump solutions and some of the things that they put out there, uh, cold yep. air contracting, uh, Newfoundland power. So we've tried right. to cover the bases so people don't jump in with both feet, not knowing what they need to know. But like everything else in this world, whether it be a government subsidy or otherwise, you need to make sure you know what you're getting yourself into before you make any plans or spend any money. So th- I guess that's the summary piece of advice I would offer. Absolutely, and myself too. Like I said, I did, I wasn't even aware of it until it came to my attention. Um, so, Patty, uh, I just wanted to briefly speak to the uh, whistleblowers' report. Um, uh, you know, on behalf of, uh, well, I'm told, 22 employees of Elections Newfoundland and uh, Labrador. Um, you know, the port, the report uh, definitely exists. Um, uh, I, I have. I have a summons, a copy of a summons from one of the people who are involved from the citizens rep uh, to participate in the investigation. And of course, in addition to that, I have filed a complaint of my own with the citizens rep, uh, uh, with the citizens rep that I do not believe that the uh, that the Accountability, Integrity, and Administration Act is being followed uh, properly in terms of the handling of this report and. If there was no report, the citizens' rep would say, well, Mr. Lane, there's no point in making a report because there is no report. There, there will be no investigation because there's no report. That's not the case. Uh, he will be proceeding with an investigation on how it's been handled. So I know there's a report. Uh, I, I, again, just want to appeal to, you know, to the government, whoever has this report now, um, you know, you need to come forward. You need to bring it to the Management uh, Commission um, uh, of the House Assembly. So we can see exactly what's going on, uh, and we can take whatever action is, uh, is is going to be required. I really feel badly for, this is the most important part for me, uh, the fact that we have, you know, these employees uh, who are at Elections Newfoundland Labrador, and a number of them have called me, some of them are my constituents, who say they're working in a toxic work environment and have been and have been for quite some time and to know that an investigation was done a year ago and submitted to the speaker's office uh, over two months ago I think it's like two and a half months ago now and nobody's aware of it nobody's acknowledging it and from what I gather there's been no corrective action taken uh, I think that's a big problem. It's a problem for our system, our democracy, but it's also a huge problem for the people who had the courage to come forward and make that report to begin with. I mean, what's the point of having whistleblower legislation if you, if somebody avails of that and then absolutely nothing is done? Look, there's issues regarding human resources, and we know that's one of the areas where government has to be pretty careful on this front because there's privacy concerns that have to be addressed. It's always helpful if the Information Privacy Commissioner, Mr. Harvey, gets to adjudicate what should and should not be publicly released. But it can be done inside that committee that you mentioned and protecting people can just be mentioned as candidate A or interviewee A or B or whatever, and we can go down that road. It becomes 
I don't know, I was going to say stupid, but maybe that's maybe that is the right word. If the report's in hand, there's zero downside for the government to say the report is in hand. We're evaluating how to proceed. You know, even if that's not the full, complete answer that people want, it's a step in the right direction versus just, you know, shrugging their shoulders. Well, I don't know. But, you know, that's not helpful at all. So these are important matters. And we are finding ourselves in a place here now, whether it be something is uh, deemed to be a cabinet document or a client solicitor privilege or commercial sensitivities or human resources issues. There's a lot that's always gone on behind the scenes inside of government, but we can't have any rhetoric surrounding accountability and transparency without actually following through on it. Let's make Mr. Harvey, Michael Harvey, the be-all and end-all, the person that gets the final say on what should be revealed. There's always going to be room for protection inside Cabinet. I get it. There's absolutely some documents that do not need to see the public discourse light of day because there's ongoing, whether it be contractual relations or intellectual property or whatever, but now it's pretty widespread. Michael Harvey himself will tell you, they're overusing and possibly abusing clients or privilege. He can't just say it is without it actually being that, and all of a sudden I can't get a look at a piece of info, so we've got a long way to go. No, uh, I agree on that front, but I think it's also important to note that in this particular case, if you look at the uh, the Accountability and Integrity uh, Act, and it's pretty ironic, the Accountability and Integrity, and then the conversation we're having, but anyway, if you look at that act, it's quite clear what has to happen to the report um, and nowhere in that process is cabinet involved it doesn't go it, do, it like the act says it does not go to cabinet it goes from uh, it goes from the privacy it goes from the uh, citizens rep to the speaker to right the speaker and the clerk yeah and then the speaker would refer it to the auditor general and obviously that would be if there was any financial issues that would have to be further looked into the attorney general which i you know again according to uh, my conversation with the citizens rep that would be if there was any like legal matters any any you know any criminal matters and so on uh, i don't believe that to be the case says the finance minister uh, I, i'm not sure what circumstance would dictate that uh, or the house assembly management commission nowhere in that uh, nowhere in that document does it say it goes to the cabinet so if they, they can't say it's a cabinet document because it doesn't even go to the cabinet under the under the act so it's either with one of those people, it's either with, it's either with the uh, Attorney General, the Auditor General, uh, the Finance Minister, uh, or the Speaker is simply hanging on to it because it's not with the Management Commission. And it can't go to anybody else because the Act says it, it, doesn't, it, it can't go to Cabinet. That's not there. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know the reason why. I mean, there's speculation as to why. They're holding on to it. Um, but at the end of the day, my biggest concern is the fact that we have allegedly 22 people who have come forward. They say they're working in a toxic workplace and they're continuing to do so. And from what I can gather, nothing has changed down there. Uh, and there's nothing being done to address their issues. So, I mean, whether they share the report or they hold on to it or whatever they do or not, Someone should still be addressing the issues that are contained in the report and have been pointed out by the citizen's representative. That's not happening, and that's simply not good enough. So as I said, I have a complaint filed myself um, with the citizen's rep, and from there I'm hopeful that at some point in time we're going to end up seeing this report or 
well, not or. There will be another. Well, there's going to be another report coming for the House at some point, but it won't be uh, elections Newfoundland uh, on it. It'll be. I guess it'll be the Speaker's office. Maybe so, Paul. I appreciate the time this morning. Have a nice weekend. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye bye. I uh, appreciate the patience of Mr. Powell, the president of Fort Amherst Healthcare. He's up right after this. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number six. Say good morning to the president of Fort Amherst Healthcare. Uh, my healthcare? <laughs> That's Mike Powell. Hi, Mike. You're on the air. Oh, hey. Good morning, Patty. How are you? I'm doing great, sir, and I appreciate your patience. Welcome to the show. Oh, no, not at all. It's great to be here. So, what's going on? What's up? Well, we are hosting a walk for Alzheimer's at our Westbury Estates location this Sunday. Um, you know, this is the, the annual big fundraiser for the Alzheimer's Society. Uh, and when we were speaking to their CEO a week ago, they were almost $60,000 short of their annual goal for this, which is, again, their major fundraiser. So we've um, worked to put an event together. Um, it's going to be right outside uh, on our parking lot, rain or shine. We've got a covered tent. There's going to be face painting and superheroes for the kids and all kinds of great music. You know, our friends from Sullivan Songhouse and John and Wolf Kern and Greg Walsh are coming. Uh, it's going to be a really great time. And uh, behind the scenes, we've been hustling pretty hard to try and, and, and raise some money for the organization. So we're really hoping we're going to be able to help take a bite out of that $60,000 deficit for them. What should people know about Alzheimer's? Because we, you know, there's sometimes we throw around Alzheimer's and dementia as if they're the exact same thing and they're interchangeable when they're not really. One's a category, one's a specific disease. But what should we know about Alzheimer's, the prevalence of, and the issues surrounding not only people with Alzheimer's, but their caregivers? I think that it's that it's devastating patty um that it takes a huge toll as you've pointed out not just on the person with the affliction um but on their whole you know social community and, and support structure uh that you know there's folks like the alzheimer's society who are a, a first point of contact when you get the diagnosis um but it's really you know um, either or are, are illnesses that require a lot of support from from the community so um, supporting folks like the Alzheimer's Society, making community programming available, all very important and effective uh, in helping people cope with, with the illness or the affliction. It's remarkable. You know, there are reports out there, both on Alzheimer's and dementia, talking about increases which are astronomical. Dementia alone, the last report that I read from the Canadian Institute of Health Information was it's expected to rise 68% over the next 20 years. Uh, uh, Pardon me, Alzheimer's expected to rise not that much, not as much as 68%, but in the 50s over the next 20 years. So whatever's happening today in preparations for tomorrow need to be attended to today. Like everything else inside of the world of healthcare delivery and caregivers and caregiver support, we know the numbers. The Canadian Information, uh, the Canadian Institute for Health Information is very accurate, very reputable source of information. So we know what's happening, we see what's coming, and we've got to be prepared. So, you know, with deficits at the Alzheimer's Society, they won't be able to do the good work that the growing demand on them and their resources, these are things that we've got to all be paying special attention to. No, you're exactly right. And to that po to that point, um, our friends at the Alzheimer's Society tell us in the last year, inbound calls have gone up by about 300%. Um, you know, there's an enormous amount of demand from the services. Uh, again, what they, what they provide to the community is really that first resource to lean on when you've been diagnosed or your partner's been diagnosed, you don't know what to do. Um, you know, so to think about them even kind of coping with the situation uh, that they have is tough. To think about, you know, running out of deficit is, is unthinkable. So the community has been wonderful in, in um, kind of rallying behind this. And uh, like I said, we look forward to continuing to raise funds and uh, 
and have a good announcement for, for the group when we get together on Sunday. But if any of your listeners would like to contribute, um, you know, if you go to our Facebook page, uh, you can find us at IG Walk for Alzheimer's at Westbury Estates. Uh, it's, again, it's from 11 to 3 this Sunday um, at the Westbury Estates Personal Care Home outside on the parking lot. Um, you know, it's a free event to attend. You know, lots of great food, music, children's entertainment. We'd really like to just get you out there. And if you can't donate, that's fine. Come and, and learn about it. Find ways that you can support people in the community that, that you know, that have it. Um, really just anything that we can do to both help, you know, raise some money for the organization and raise awareness in general. I really appreciate you making time for the show and for being part of this event coming up this weekend. Mike, thank you very much. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And again, if anybody would like to make a contribution, they can go to IG Walk for Alzheimer's at Westbury Estates. Uh, and we would love to see you out between 11 and 3 uh, at Westbury Estates Personal Care Home, 160 Southlands Boulevard. Um, hope to see you there. Thanks for this, Mike. See you guys. Take Bye-bye. good care. Bye-bye. It's Mike Powell, the president of Fort Amherst Healthcare. Let's go. Where do you want me to go, Dave? Well, I probably not start a long chat here. We're, we're okay. I'm just going to pick one here. Uh, lawyer, uh, line number three, Joyce, you're on the air. Hi. Hiya. How are you this morning? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How about you? Oh, still alive and kicking. That's a good thing. Oh, oh yeah. Uh, the increase uh, the government put into um, effect there about the gas and for people burning oil, the payout for that, mm-hmm. they didn't include wood. People have to cut their own wood. Now, as with me, I order eight or nine cords of wood every year because I'm a senior. And, I mean, it costs 900 to to 1000 and with the price of diesel, uh, guaranteed that's going up again this year. What about us? We're left out of the mix. So were people that uh, heat their homes with electricity or hydro. So there wasn't anything specific in there, you know, outside of the sub- some of the subsidies for transition from oil to electric, that kind of stuff. But, yeah, there's a couple of segments uh, left out of this, both the five-point plan and the measures announced yesterday. I don't know if government can be attentive to every single different need and cost-of-living issue facing you, me, Dave Williams, or anybody else. But, yeah, I didn't hear anything about wood. No, it's not right. I mean, it costs I get a permit. If you're on a pension, I mean, it costs to run a power saw. It costs gas to get to the area you're going to to cut the wood, and gas costs a fortune. How are people supposed to survive? Not everybody's got electric or uh, oil or whatever. And, I mean, they're giving money to people who make 100000 or 125000 What about the poor seniors getting next to nothing? You know, and not all of them got uh, oil or electric. No, you're right. There's, and again, and I'm not going to say, uh, well, geez, I didn't get anything in this announcement yesterday. I'll get a little break at the pumps, but I haven't qualified for any of these cost-saving issues beyond that one. So I understand. There's lots of people left on the outside looking in, whether it be seniors who use maybe wood to heat their home or as a supplement to heat their home and or whatever the big swath of the middle class is and what they've, been, what they've seen in some of these costs of living mitigation measures. So there's lots of people that haven't really felt some of the relief that's being put forward by the government. And it's not right I mean, because some people making 125000 or 100000 they're getting a break. 
Yeah, and again, not to dismiss or diminish any of it, but if you have a family income on $100,000, $500. Income between $100,000 and $150,000, you get a uh, payment between uh, $200 or $500. So again, yes, I mean, I'm sure these people will be more than happy to get that break. But if we're being realistic, uh, the $200 could be a couple of trips to the grocery store, and that's it. Yeah, but I'm not getting any break. Oh, I know. I, I heard the that part. middle man is left out. The middle, you know what I'm saying? Middle income is sure. like, you're just out of the mix. I mean, I know people that are getting $500 payout because they're over 70, uh, 75 years old. I mean, seniors are seniors regardless. Yes, ma'am. So that would be about old age security. And that 500 bucks was uh, a, a while back now. And they also exactly. got a 10% increase uh, permanent. Exactly. Yep. And uh, not only that, gas uh, was supposed to go down. It went up three point something. I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? 3.9, yeah. The yeah, when they said it was supposed <laughs> to go down, it went up. That was so people wouldn't go gas up. And anyway, the uh, cut like eight percent eight uh cents off the gas or whatever and yeah. or anyways uh there's no uh savings there because i mean they got half their money back already so you're getting four point whatever Okay. Uh, so, yes, Joyce, there's people left out of any of these additional supports, and I don't know how they would broach uh, helping you save money on a cord of wood. So, do you rely on... I, I get eight to nine cords. I, I uh, get mine from uh, the companies that delivered on a flatbed, the big trucks. So, nice dry birch? A birch and... Uh, a mixture. Okay, that burns, yeah. burns nice and hot. So do you rely in full or just you have a wood stove that you use sometimes in the winter? No, no, I have a wood and electric furnace. Oh, yeah, very good. Remember my old nanny and pop, they had the wood stove, and I mean the stove for cooking, and it was all uh, energized by burning wood under those big dampers. Yeah. Anyway, someone stole it out of the house after Nan died. Boy, that still drives me. Uh, Joyce, I appreciate your time. Take good care of yourself. So anyway, I wish Fury would get his act together and think about everybody, just not, you know what I'm saying? I hear you. We're all seniors, and we all need the money. So go back to the table or the drawing board or whatever. (laughs) Thanks. Patty, you have a lovely day, and thanks for taking my call. My pleasure, Joyce. You take care. You do, bye. All right, bye-bye. Just quick uh, mention on the mini splits. So mini splits do require electric heat as a backup. Heat pumps have built-in auxiliary heat. They don't require a, a baseboard heater, as per a fellow who's actually working in the business. He'd know. Let's take a break. When we come back, uh, labor advocate Elise Stewart is in the queue to talk about the minimum wage hike that was announced by the government yesterday. Don't go away. Weekday mornings from 5.30 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number one, say good morning to labor advocate Elise Stewart. Good morning, Elise. You're on the air. Good morning. How are you, Patty? I'm doing okay. Thanks. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. So the government has been under siege by the general public to come up with some mitigation measures to help us deal with inflation, cost of living. Everybody knows the conversation. So yesterday, after their five-point plan, which is whatever, uh, some while back, some $80 million worth of issues and discussing minimum wage. By the end of 2023, to see $15. And just to set it up for context for folks, the formal fight for 15 
started in 2009. Inflation has increased 40% since 2009. So the fight for 15 is maybe a fight that's over and a new fight yet to begin. For sure, for sure. You know, we launched in 2018 in the province with 15 parents NL. And in 2018, we were asking for $15 an hour. So by the time we actually get to that point, it's going to be five years down the line. And inflation has not stopped. The cost of living has not stopped. Those things have actually just gone exponentially higher. So, you know, I... uh, I had a lot of folks that were saying, why can't you just be thankful? You know, why can't you just be happy? Um, And so I would say that progress isn't progress if it's stopping. So, of course, it's our job, you know, as labor advocates to always challenge and always push the status quo and say that, you know, if this happened in 2018, I would have been really happy. I would have been probably celebrating these decisions. Uh, But it's just not going to address these huge inequalities that we continue to face in this province. You know, I've just been kind of listening on the line while you were talking to folks, Patty, and that's that's what everybody's concerned about, right? What about gas? What about my heating? What about food? What about all of these large structural issues that we still face? And I think that this five-point plan, um, you probably could use a lot more points and a lot more uh, large-scale um I think, large-scale mechanisms to help people in this province, which it just fell short on. If we're talking about money in people's pockets, and there's so many widespread implications about how much money you have or don't have, I admit, and I know I've probably said this to you in the past, that I find minimum wage to be the trickiest component of how much money you have. If Mm -hmm. my son is making minimum wage living at home, that's vastly different than my neighbor, single mother of two, making minimum wage living on her own. And if I work for a small mom and pop versus work for a multinational, minimum wage is a different implication for the business owner. I don't know how we have a minimum wage conversation without acknowledging that it's not one thing for you or me or Dave Williams or anyone else because we all have different life, life circumstances. So how do we incorporate that into this conversation? You know, I think that part of the plan and actually the report from the Real Wage Review Committee, which, you know, shout out to those folks, especially uh, Mark Nichols, uh, who's been doing a lot of doing this work for a long time. And the report actually does talk about some of these things, like how do we bring minimum wage into the larger context and conversation about affordability, about accessibility, about how we make a province where no one's left behind. And I did notice that one of the measures that was suggested, which we've been talking about, I think we've talked about before, Patty, is that for small mom and pop shops, that's where the government can step in and help them get to that point of a living wage. You know, we don't need to worry about helping Walmart or any of these large multinational corporations. They will always find their way to uh, make a profit, and they continue to do so at alarming rates. Uh, but how do we make sure that this province is looking after everyone, including the business community? So there was that suggestion to say, okay, for businesses that have under 20 employees, let's have a program to help them alleviate the stress of increasing the minimum wage. Right. Uh, and, you know, the minimum wage, sure, it's going to be different for any walk of life, but you want to make sure that you're always bringing everybody's boat up. Right? We want to make sure that it doesn't really matter um, if somebody's living at home or if, you know, if they are struggling to find housing, which is unfortunately the case here. Let's bring everybody up by having a living wage that addresses all of these issues, that addresses your housing, your food, uh, your fuel, all of these different ways that we need to exist in this current economic climate. Um, So again, the minimum wage to a living wage is, of course, one way. And I think the health accord, you know, this report coming on the heels of that, that was one of their main recommendations, right? Like, how do you make people healthier? You make sure they're not struggling with poverty. You make sure that they have the tools they need to live in this province. And having a living wage is one very important piece of that puzzle. 
David Card, Canadian researcher, he looked at minimum wage and its implications pretty comprehensively, to say the very least, and mm-hmm. won a Nobel Prize for his efforts, uh, dismissing some of the absolute doom and gloom sometimes brought forward by some members of the business community. Even if you look at a real-life scenario in the province of Ontario, it didn't lose, the, I was told, 66,000 jobs would be lost within a week. It didn't happen. Nothing near that <laughs> happened. Another important point with, generally speaking, I don't like to generalize, but minimum wage earners will generally spend money where they live, as opposed yeah. to all of a sudden off to Punta Cana. You know, it's just a very different issue here. So recirculating more money is actually very helpful to business, I would suggest. Now, let me uh, pick your brain on this one. Because people are strapped here now, and mm-hmm. some of the money they might have been able to spend outside of the, the, the necessities of life might not be there. So how do we incorporate that legitimate business concern with, you know, pandemic and cost of, uh, cost of living and inflationary pressures? Because Mr. Card's research and other examples like in Ontario, maybe the, the water and the beans has changed just slightly, which is maybe an argument governor's making for hauling off the full hike to 15 to 2023. What do you think? Yeah, I think that, you know, unfortunately, I will go to not unfortunately, but I think I'm going to use the logic of Nobel Prize winners and the Ontario government, who is a good example because they resisted it. Right. The Ford government actually repealed uh, increasing to $15. And then recently, as probably a part of a campaign trail as well, he's increased it again to $15 an hour with measures to move towards a living wage. And that's not because, uh, you know, in the heart of hearts, he wants to be this uh, very gentle person. It's because he understands the economic benefit of having more people having more money that they can spend in the local economy. So these, you know, I think it's part and parcel having increases to a living wage is part of, um, like you're saying, Patty, we still need to address the inflationary pressures. We still need to address food insecurity. These things don't go away because we are increasing to a living wage. Um, They're just making things easier for people to live and hopefully thrive in this province. And, you know, I think in the past, going on four years now, Patty, we've talked about newcomers and folks getting actually people to come to this province. Well, they're going to go to a province which has a higher minimum wage because, unfortunately, a lot of times newcomers are going to do entry-level positions first. So instead of coming to Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, you know, they'll go to Ontario, which is already $15 an hour. They'll go to BC, where it's surpassing $15 an hour. Uh, so this is, again, this larger picture that uh, the report definitely is is looking at that. And again, I would say that the folks that did work on that uh, minimum wage review uh, deserve a big pat on the back because they did look at this holistic approach to wage as a part of, of wellness, right? It's just one piece, but it is such an important piece. Um, and 2023 is a long time away for a lot of folks that are still struggling today. So hopefully there can be some movement on some other aspects to alleviate those pressures. Uh, And I did really appreciate um, another recommendation in the report that said, let's not repeal other social supports. If you get close to the, to the point where, Oh no, if I make too much, then my other social securities will be taken off. No, let's put these all together to just lift people up, which is what we're trying to do at the end of the day. Yeah. You know, maybe just maybe when we see that the consensus in the house of assembly to have an examination of guaranteed basic income or universal basic income, whatever, that might replace minimum wage, chasing our tail kinds of conversations because there's a long-standing standoff on both sides of that discussion as opposed to if we can have a, and I'm not saying we need to do one thing or the other, but a a carefully crafted message about how it looks, how it would work, what we've seen as an upside where it's been instituted, you know, add up both sides of the ledger, Mm -hmm. every current, whether it be boutiques uh, tax cut or every social safety net program and all 
those other things, how much money the province and the country spends, then translate that to maybe, you know, universal basic income, give us a mathematical calculation, then express what we think it can do, extend it into engagement with criminal justice and healthcare. But we haven't done that. People are either in or out. And in or out is basically whether or not you want to go for a swim. Not when we're talking about important government policy. No, and especially not when we're talking about keeping people in this province and keeping them safe and making sure they don't have to make the really tough choice of, you know, in or out for somebody that's on minimum wage could be in or out of my home. It could be in or out of my ability to pay for groceries. You know, the in or out in those cases, the stakes are so much higher. And I think the workers of this province who have shown, you know, they keep showing up through pandemic, through with Stomageddon, through all of these ongoing tragedies that we are facing, they keep showing up. So we need to show up for them. And I would say that, you know, I heard a lot of folks talking about the price of gas and that huge concern. Just a quick note that Shell reported $9 billion in their quarterly profit as oil and gas prices surged. So it is not that there is a lack of that uh, resource. It is that these companies are going to exploit any weakness that they find. So um, I think government has a role to play, but also a role to play in holding these large multinational corporations accountable for how they impact the daily lives of people. And that's where political rhetoric has allowed so many voters to take their eye off all the different components that we're dealing with with inflation and cost of living because if we can't acknowledge the fact that uh, we're at a 70 year high for corporate corporate profits then we're kind of missing a pretty important component here of the conversation yeah. so anyway Elise, always appreciate you making time for the show thanks a lot Oh, thanks so much, Patty. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Take care. Bye now. Right, bye-bye. Uh, emailer says, how is the cost of food a government problem? Well, I think the cost of everything will end up being bottom-line conversation that our families all uh, deal with. So how can you back the cost of food out of a government concern? The government acknowledges it, you know, with food security, reliability, and cost. All the, uh, the aforementioned issues they've done, mentorship for incoming farmers, new technology programs, uh, expansion of agricultural lands, which will indeed lead to helping deal with cost. So I don't know how we back this thing out. Plus, you know, e even if it's not just the cost of a two liter of milk or whatever, when you have a compromised diet, it has a ripple effect, right? Whether it be the health of your children, whether it be your own personal health, and what that means if your health deteriorates because of the kind of food you're able to get on your table and in your belly. So we can't just say cost of food as a standalone, and government shouldn't be picking winners and losers, but we all lose when we can't have access, reliable access, to reasonably priced food. Now, you know, they talk about it again. So just to extend that point, government obviously thinks cost of food is an issue when they're going to put a tax on a sugary drink. Drinks are food. You know, so they've already done these things. They don't put a tax on your groceries, but if you have a pre-made meal in the grocery store, they tax it. So government's already in bed with talking about the cost of food. So to pretend that it's not a government concern is complete nonsense. And then the same person says, we're borrowing $2 billion a year. Of course, we all know where the, where the province is, but the questions are staggeringly complex yet important. I know that government is up against it. 100%. But if all of the worst-case scenarios manifest themselves with just how much the, the struggle is real, and it is mightily real, that has an implication on government too. So look, I talk about the borrowing level all the time, all the time, you know, especially as it relates to how much we spend to service our debt versus on education. But if more families and individuals struggle, that makes everything worse. So the question, as I've said many times on the show, has to be asked, 
is it better for government to take on some additional struggles or for more and more Newfoundlanders and Labradorians every day, week, and month to heap on their debt load and to take on additional struggles? That's the mathematical question being asked here. Not to pretend that everything's rosy at the government and they should be able to give us everything we want. No, everyone gets that. But, you know, we, we boil down these things to, I guess it's important to have bite-sized morsels to wrap our mouths and, and minds around, but anywho, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go. Line number two. Lloyd, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you? Doing okay. How are you doing? I'm not too bad. First time caller, so bear with me. Welcome to the show. Uh, I just want to call in and talk about the wage that respite workers and home care workers are getting paid in this province. Uh, I've been a respite worker for 15 years, and when I first started out, uh, my wage was, it had a gap between what minimum wage was. Every time minimum wage went up, we would get an increase to keep that gap. So in 2017, that stopped. And we haven't seen a raise since then, but yet minimum wage has increased six or eight times. Now with this new increase of three more times uh, up until October 2023, my wage at that point will be minimum wage. And I think it's time for the government to actually step in and look at this group of workers and what it is we do for society. I mean, we look at, we we take care of society's most vulnerable people, and we're basically going to be doing it for minimum wage. What do you do? I mean, I hear respite worker. I think I know what to do, but I'm not 100% sure. What do you do? As a, as a respite worker, I take care of a disabled individual, a person who can't use the bathroom for himself, can't feed himself, can't walk or talk. And come to 2023, I'll be basically doing this job for minimum wage. I mean, I administer pills, I bathe them, clothe them feed them and I'll be doing all this for minimum wage if our wage don't increase yeah I mean just look at some of the most difficult jobs the respite workers other people working in different levels of home care people working in early childhood education all these important jobs that we have people taking on for really, really low rates of pay, even though the jobs are difficult, they're important. And it happens, you know, if, if I don't have a home care worker in my home, I probably don't give it much consideration. If one of my loved ones doesn't need a respite worker, I probably don't think about it. If I don't have a kid getting early childhood education, it's probably not on my radar. But these are the types of chats that I think are helpful to round out the discussions like you're doing here today. Yes. And just want to call in and see if other home care workers, respite workers, want to start voicing their opinion and see if the government want to see how it is that we've actually slipped through the cracks over the last five years. Well, I'm glad that you made the call here today. You know, these are... Again, it's hard for every listener to be considering all the different issues that are uh, surrounding people in the province because we've all got our day-to-day concerns, right? You know, what my family needs will be at the top of my list and what some of the people in my social circles or uh, in the larger community, what their concerns are. It's hard to focus in on them because we've all got so much going on. That's why these types of calls help because now people have probably never given much thought to the rate of pay for a respite worker and the work that you do, but now they might. So I'm glad you made uh, made time for us. Perfect. And I just hope people start considering what it is we actually get paid and what I would consider to be such a low wage for what we actually do. At one point, 
we seemed like we were doing good. We were at roughly a $5 debt between what minimum wage was. But like I said, 2017, that all stopped. And minimum wage keeps going up, but our wage stays the same. With these new increases, I mean, we get paid just over $15 an hour. So come October 2013, we're basically doing this job now for minimum wage. After 15 years of doing it with the same individuals, now I'm basically back to working for minimum wage. I hear you. And we have no benefits. So as a working for a private home, you get no medical benefits, no dental. Uh, your holiday pay is actually paid out on each check. So you can't bank holiday time. So if you want two weeks off in the summer, you take it without pay. I hear you. So just hopefully the government will start listening and they'll just have a look at what our group of individuals does. I mean, we're crying for workers, and if the wage don't go up, you just ain't going to get them, not at minimum wage. Appreciate you making time, Lloyd. Good to have you on the show. All right. Thanks, Patty. Take good care of yourself. Have All a good day. Right. You too. Bye-bye. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a big... You know, sometimes we try to make, or I try to make, even things that I don't fully understand because nobody understands all the issues and has all the answers. Nobody does. Nobody but nobody. So when you can help me round out conversations, whether it be about minimum wage or implications inside policy with the fishery or healthcare, criminal justice, whatever it is, because you've lived it or you know something about that you'd like to add to the conversation, that's what makes the world go round. Here on the program, so how are we doing on the phone, Dave? Okay, we're doing okay. Let's take a break from the news. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The Cabin Party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on VOCM. Uh, welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to Jason Russell. Russell, he's the owner of Bay Roberts Seafood. We talked with him the other day about the fact that the approval for a crab license out in St. Mary's was granted, but there was four other communities. I think it was Ramia, Codroy, and Bay Roberts, and one other that eludes me at this moment in time were rejected, despite Bay Roberts being recommended by the price, the processing licensing board. Man, that's a mouthful. Line number three. Jason, you're on the air. Hey, how you doing, Patty? Doing great, man. You? Good, buddy. Good. Um, just wanted to uh, just want to have a uh, talk with your listeners there. Um, Listen to uh, Minister Bragg's uh, interview last night on the broadcast, and I love it. I have to say, I love it when he goes public and tries to put his two cents worth into the fishery. Uh, I find it amusing, and I love it uh, just listening to his uh, take on his uh, decisions. Last night, Minister Bragg said that. One of his argument was that there are seven plants adjacent to uh, the crab grounds here on the East Coast, and he felt that there was no more room for any more plants based on his analogy. Well, Mr. Bragg, I'm going to give you some statistics now on, what, on your comments. Seven plants, seven crab plants make up 30% of the crab processing plants in Newfoundland. There are 23 plants in total. Um, so... The quota here on the East Coast, the total quota is um, uh, adjacent to those grounds or these plants that he's referring to, is about 85,157,600 pounds. That makes up 76% of the overall quota. So right now, Mr. Bragg, you just said that 30% of the plants have access to 76, adjacent to 76% of the quota, and that's enough. 
So the other 16 plants are adjacent to 24%. Okay, that's great. So based on your analogy, it looks like there is more room here on the East Coast. Um, I think we can, um, I think there's enough room for at least one plant with the 2 million pound restricted license. That's it. That was just 2 million pounds is what we were looking for. So I think we have room there for that. That's one point I want to make, uh, Patty, on that. And another another point I want to make, um, I, I just hope that all plant workers and fish harvesters uh, listening to your show right now uh, are, are listening to what I'm about to say. In the fishery, the fishery here in Newfoundland, it's common practice. A lot of, all, the processors work together on a lot of things. They compete on, uh, for certain products, but in, in the most time, we all get along and we work together. And I'll, An example of that is in the Capelin fishery. The Capelin fishery is very short, very fast, a lot of product coming in very quick. And what happens when, th- when this happens, uh, plants cannot keep up with the, the, the amount of supply coming in. And so as a result of that, they they uh, lean on other plants and they say, hey, listen, we got this boat coming in. We got this much capelin. Can you process it You know, for a fee? Can you process this because we don't have time to do it? And that's a win situation there because the fisherman is not sitting there with his product going bad in the boat. And uh, the, the product gets processed and we have good quality product to go in the market. So on the on the crab, so so let's let's just ref, uh, let's just uh, switch that to the crab. So right now, um, to the plant workers right now that probably just got off shift after working 30 or 40 days and knowing they have to go back into work again tomorrow, and to the fish harvesters who have their boats tied up right now and they're on trip limits for maybe uh, a week, two weeks, uh, whatever it is. Let's say for example today we had a license and we had all of our equipment and we were ready to go. And one of those plants said, you know what, our workers had just been working 40 days straight. Our harvesters are very upset. We're, you know what we're going to do here now? We're going to call Bay Robert Seafoods. Well, you know, here you go, guys. Can you take this bit of crab here? Because, uh, you know, we, we, we can't handle it right now. It's just sitting here. Uh, uh, there's a, a glut in the market, and we would like for you to help us out. Well, sure, we'll do that. And I'm going to tell you what happens as a result of us doing that. It's a win-win situation for everyone. The plant workers, the plant workers win because they get a day off that day. Today, they'll get a day off to spend time with their family, their friends, or whatever else they have to do. The fish harvesters win. The fish harvesters' uh, trip limits are shortened. They, uh, you know, they, they get out, or they can bring more in at a time, which will save them on fuel, costs, and days at sea, which is a high risk for these uh, for these brave men and women on the ocean. The the larger processors will win. They'll win. Obviously, they'll win. They'll they'll be able to uh, maintain uh, maintain their uh, workforce. They'll, the morale of their workers will be higher because they're getting their days off, and uh, they'll have a low turnover. And it's not going to really hurt their uh, their bottom line because the two million pounds of Bay Robert Seafoods, the two million pounds, is not going to make it make it or break it for these guys. Let me tell you that. It's Jim. also a win. I, I, sorry, Patty. I just I want to name out all the all the winners in this situation. Another winner would be a small locally owned processing plant that gets to survive and contribute to the fishery and the economy. A plant that has been around for for over forty four years. Local Newfoundlanders win. They get much needed employment in our area. Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Another winner is the government. The pressure on government to deal with the issues of the fishery. This would alleviate some of the pressure from them. It's not going to eliminate it, but it will eliminate it. It will re- uh, reduce it. Another win is that the industry ensures all crab, all crab leaving this island is top quality, 
which ensures top prices and returns for our economy, our, our fishers, our plant workers, our future. And no crab will be sitting in trucks or boats decreasing in quality. This is how many wins there are associated with us getting just a measly 2 million pounds. So, Minister Bragg, I want you to go back on the broadcast. I want you to come here on open line, and I want you to counter that. Counter that right now. Please. I want to hear your take on it. Uh, mine? <laughs> no, sorry. Minister Bragg. <laughs> okay. So... I, I get that, and there's, but of course, those who are operating a plant who have a access to X number of million of pounds of crap, they'll stand their ground. They'll fight for what they have because that's how business works. I mean, even if there's a collegial relationship between plant owners. Nobody wants to see them lose any of their quota. But I guess the other ones would be: can the same argument be made in Ramia? and in Codroy, and in everywhere else who would dearly love to have a crab license, because I, question, I guess the question would be then is where does it end, and how do we all of a sudden see what you d- determined to be winners if you were given your license, versus how we might create some losers if we don't know where to draw the line. I'm just posing it as a hypothetical because I understood exactly what you said, but what do you think of what I just said? That's a great question, Patty. And uh, like Minister Bragg said last night, only one, good th- only one sensible thing he said, uh, you know, time will tell. And right now, ask the, ask the fish harvesters and the plant workers, as I said, how, ask them how they feel right now with these, uh, with these uh, trip limits and uh, worked uh, all, these, all, all the time that they've worked. Right now, there is room. Right now, there is room for this. And next year, hey, the quota, uh, DFO has already announced that it's going to be two to four years. Like uh, uh, Reg Anthony said the other night, Reg Anthony, uh, that board over 200 years, over 200 years of combined experience on that board. And like he said, it, it, there's no, there's a get, this, the quota could increase. We could see increases next year or the year after. What's going to happen then? We're, what, what, will, what will happen then? And you know what? Like you, to answer your question, yeah, maybe next year or the year after, hey, maybe Randy, I can get in on this, and maybe someone else as well. Boys, we can't keep up with this. There's a lot of crab coming at us. Yeah, you know, and I mean, crab. certainly one of the more confusing things that the minister did say is, well, maybe in a couple of years from now that the quarter will be reduced. But that's when you make decisions is based on what's oh, happening this year versus what might happen two years down the road. So I didn't oh even quite God. understand that rationale. My God, Patty, of course you didn't understand it. Nobody understands that rationale. It's an industry. There's an oil industry. There's a weed industry. There's a fishery. It's all industry. There's ups and downs. When it's up, more entrants go in. When it's down, guess what? They get out. And then when it goes back up again, hey, we're going back into at this again. That's that's the, that's your economy. That's the world. That's how the world works. That's the real world. Has chances no people take? heard here. We're we're all just keeping up with whatever whatever resources are available. And if we have excess resources, of course everybody should be in on this. And two million pounds of Bay Robert seafoods, give me a break. And yes, Minister Bragg, you you basically have admitted that you're an expert in this industry. Because to go against that board, to discredit that board like that, you have uh, you have indirectly admitted you're an expert, and you know what you're talking about. And I, I had a okay. board member call me two days ago and said he felt like I got kicked in the guts. That was his exact words he said to me. Kicked in the guts, Jason. I can't believe all the work, time, blood, sweat we put into this. They really, I'm telling you, that board put their heart and soul, and they got that board 
has the best interest of this island, of this fishery. I can guarantee you that. And when he, he felt like he was betrayed, this board member felt like he was betrayed, and I don't blame him one bit. And for him to get on there last night and to come up with, oh, seven plants, oh, uh, uh, plant workers, hours, weeks, EI, whatever. What are you talking about? you got nothing to back it up. Come on now and back all this up, what you're getting on with. Okay. This has little to do with uh, how that particular board member feels, but even with their collective 200 years of experience, sometimes that doesn't jibe what the unknowns and the who knows what goes on in the mines and the setting of total albacatch at dfo <laughs> that's where experience sometimes goes out the window because i talk with a lot of seriously experienced people inshore offshore processing sector and otherwise that they can't wrap their mind around some annual dfo decision so sometimes experience doesn't necessarily jibe with policy which is extremely unfortunate especially when we're talking about an industry as vital as the fishery uh good to have you on the show jason the challenge has been put out there and the minister if he'd like to accept it he could do it on this program perfect thank you very much patty appreciate your time take care Thank you, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Jason Russell is the uh, owner of Bay Roberts Seafood. And, of course, there was a recommendation from the Processing Licensing Board to give the green light for Mr. Russell's application for a couple of uh, 2.5 million pounds of crab, and that was summarily rejected by the minister. Not normally the, the course of action. People have long thought that the recommendation from the board basically just got a rubber stamp from the minister this time. Not so much. Let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Catherine. You're on the air. Hi. I was listening to the guy talking about the wages with home care and respite workers. Mm-hmm. I'm also a home care worker, so I understand totally of what he's saying. And it just, I, I, I just wanted to put it out there that um, it seems weird or odd to me that here in Canada, um, our social workers, our home care workers, anybody who needs to be with mentally disabled or physically disabled or troubled teens or whatever it is, their wages are so low. And yet somebody who's working on the council that's doing a very minimal job, anybody could do it, are getting high wages. It just blows me away that that's what's going on. There's an all-level playing field out there across the board, isn't there? You know, where the sweet spot Yeah, where the sweet spot is, I really don't know. And, you know, the demand on one respite worker is probably very similar, but not exactly like the demand on another. Same oh, thing with sure. healthcare, same thing with early childhood educators, the ones that we notably go to. So I really don't know how we deal with that disparity. I honestly don't. Yes, even um, um, the more educated ones like the social workers. I mean, they're in school for a while. um, My nephew, sorry, I'm stumbling. My nephew is a social worker for youth, troubled youth, and he's getting minimum wage. It just doesn't seem fair to me because it's a calling. It's not everybody can do this type of work. It has to be, you have to have your full mind in it, is what I'm trying to say, in a very caring heart. You know what I'm saying? I do, and I'm pretty sure I could not do it, Catherine. Yes, and and I know that there's a lot of people, even my husband included, he'll say to me, I don't know how you do this job. And there are days where I have to step back, I have to be honest. But... um, I just think that these are important jobs, and they should 
be looked at through our government as a higher-waged job. There are some areas where I think it's a true measure of society, period. It's how we treat seniors, how we right. treat the most vulnerable, and how we treat children. You know, once you reach a certain age, it's, you know, I, I don't, sometimes I don't like saying this, but I kind of mean it. Government is not necessarily here to save your life. Not everything is at the hands of the government. So there's a real, you know, dig in and do your level best if you have the resources, the capacity to do so as an adult. But how we deal with children and the people who take care of our children, how we deal with seniors and the people who take care of them, that's a real true measure of what we're like as a, as a society. And those jobs are important. And they're difficult. Now, someone yeah. might say, I have a difficult job, but I'm not taking care of someone who's immobile uh, as a respite worker. I'm not taking care of a flock of children as an early childhood educator who has such a critically important role and so many young people depending on that person and their families every day. So, yeah, I mean, that's a uh, careful consideration there is important, no doubt. Yes, I went in to look after a lady one time with Alzheimer's, and it was full-time, full Alzheimer's. And... The, her son was um, training me in on what to do with his mother, and he said that they have a lot of people coming in from the third world countries going to university here, and they are a lot of what comes in to look after his mom for him when he's not there. And he said that they hold the seniors at a very high level in their country, and they are everything to them. And then I think we're in a free world here with all kinds of things at our hands, fingertips. Why are we just, just disregarding our older people like that? It seems so unfair. I know where you're coming from this morning, Catherine. I appreciate the time. Anything else? No, that is it. Thank you so much. Appreciate the call. Take good All care. Right. All right. Bye bye. Uh, let's get another one going before. Will we take another one? Yes, we'll take another one. Let's go to line number four. Good morning, Vic. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I wish to uh, say hi to our new uh, citizens here in Newfoundland, the Ukrainians. Uh, I'm sure they will contribute immensely to our society. And, our, and, and, of course, uh, our country as a whole. Uh, that's the, and I guess that's the reason why I'm calling, too, this morning. Uh, I'm very sad this morning to learn that there's over 4,000 civilian Ukrainians killed in this war. Uh, I know that I think you had last week there, you had a gentleman commenting on the, uh, I think he was commenting on NATO and the cost of, why the war was, I guess, the reason for having a war in Ukraine. Uh, my disappointment is actually is the UN, the United Nations. Uh, my, uh, I guess, uh, basic knowledge of the UN, I guess, when I was in school, I think maybe in grade nine. Uh, I think uh, President of the United States, uh, I think Sir Wilson. Uh, uh, was Wilson, I yeah, think. Woodrow Wilson established the League of yes, Nations yeah, in 1918. The, yes, yeah. the League of Nations. Was, I think he formed the League of Nations in yeah. I think it was 49 or 45 or 46 after the Second World War. 
My understanding is the, the United Nations, of course, was changed to the them from the League of Nations to the United Nations. My understanding of the United Nations was this, actually, up to this present day. Uh, that's probably over 100 nations that are uh, actually... Uh, 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 affiliated or in the United Nations makes up uh, probably over 100, 100 nations of the world. So what's happening? So the United Nations now are just standing by watching all those people be massacred and in Ukraine. So, uh, But uh, getting back to the basis, from what I can understand, what is present today too is this. I understood that the... Uh, uh, the United Nations had really, if they, if there were a country in the world, a sovereign state in, in the world that was couldn't look after their people uh, or abusing them or uh, committing genocide, etc., which is happening now in uh, in the Ukraine, uh, I understood the United Nations could move in there and uh, correct to try to correct the situation. No, no, that's and not what the United that. Nations has done. That's not in their constitution. No, they would send in humanitarian support peacekeepers, you know, the blue helmets. They well, did back I, I, in... Oh, yes, but I, I thought, well, maybe it's changed, but I thought I read that, of course, a long time ago. I thought that was in the, in the Constitution. No, they, they don't go in in a militaristic fashion. They, they can don't, say, they don't. So Vic, really, just, the other just thing is this, of course, now. So okay, uh, looking at uh, what uh, Russia is doing to Ukraine, and so what protection does other countries, e- even our own country in Canada, what con- what protection do we have if 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 uh, some other uh, powerful nation decides to move in and take Canada, destroy Canada? Well, what's our protection? I don't think I don't think our military could uh, uh, could stand against say, even the United States. Well, no, of course not. But that's uh, it's a totally different issue when we talk about uh, the United Nations and their role. They, you know, they do emergency appeal funding and there's humanitarian support and peacekeepers, not militaristic action. And if anyone came after uh, this country in military fashion and breached the borders and threatened our sovereignty, that's where the alliance that is NATO kicks in. You know, the classic article. Okay, now should they not uh, sort of maybe they should amalgamate? NATO with the, with the UN. Is no, okay? no, no, no. You don't you don't agree with that. But no. I mean, that's what I'm wondering now because the thing about it is this: uh, uh, we I know uh, I know I, this gentleman uh, you had on, I think it was this week or maybe last week, what caused the war in in Ukraine. Now I remember distinctly uh, Putin. I think I saw an interview on TV. Some, uh, there was some p- person interviewing Putin. He stated, I think it was 10 years ago, uh, maybe longer, but he stated at uh, that time that if the NATO didn't keep moving, uh, you know, he was uh, concerned. Actually, he made a statement to NATO saying, look, uh, uh, get away from my border, otherwise it's going to be a problem. Yeah. He said that, I think it was 12 or 10 years ago. I saw the interview. I can't remember when specifically. But uh, I'm sort of, I said to myself, my God, you know. He's, so it seems like after saying, after him saying that, 
then NATO really are not, the, I don't think, are prepared as they should be in terms of military to even probably take on Russia because but, apparently but, even NATO is hedging the idea, of, you know. And you got here's, here's a powerful country like Russia now, uh, you know, uh, threatening the world and taking and trying to take over the world, would, would appear to be. NATO doesn't have a military. Um, so uh, NATO, NATO, well, no, but they do have, they, they do have countries that are members of NATO. They do, yeah. Uh, and those countries everywhere. appear to be, are they equipped to handle Russia and military? A hundred percent. They are, hopefully. Yes, uh, oh, absolutely. But, uh, but any any alliance that includes the United States is absolutely able to handle anybody. Now, the other the other, the other Just very quickly is, before I have to get to the news, Vic, go ahead. The other question, so I ask now that if uh, Finland and Denmark, I think it is, Sweden. now they're going to join, uh, or asked to, to join NATO, Will that now? Will if well, obviously then if they join, then if Russia, of course, uh, hacks those two countries, then NATO uh, will automatically go through their defense. Is that what I understand? That's right. That's the reference to Article Five That's of the, the reference, Charter. Yes, Article Five. Yes, I, I did I read. I, mean, I read some time, some um, uh, I guess information pertaining to NATO years ago. Uh, but certainly, but this is a question I ask now. What protection do we have in Canada? Because I mean, we have a very small military uh, force here in Canada, and obviously, if uh, there's nothing stopping Russia now to um, put in a missile on our, our doorstep, is there? Well, I'm not so sure why we'd be a target, but we're members of NATO as one of our defenses. Uh, so yes, we're also talking a bit of a circle. I'll give you the last word before I have to get to the news. Vic. Okay, and I thank you. I uh, thank you uh, for taking my call. Yes, that's my concern actually. And like I say, we're seems that we're sitting by, and those people are being uh, so eliminated. I mean. Uh, I think there should be some other system. Thank you again. Take good care of yourself. Bye now. All right, bye-bye. All right, it is time for the news. Don't go away. Your VOCM Mornings with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy, 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays on your VOCM. Welcome back. Let's go, line number one. Say good morning to the Mayor of Riverhead. That's Sheila Lee. Mayor Lee, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, dear. Good morning. Good morning to you. <coughs> Uh, Patty, just a couple of comments today. Um, first of all, I'd like to say, you know, <clears throat> as you probably have have heard through the news and everything, that that we people are very appreciative and excited over getting the license for our plant. Uh, I mean, getting back the license for our plant, I should say. And um, you know, we're very grateful and thankful. But at the same point in time, I was listening to Mr. Russell over the past couple of days. And I'd like to weigh in a little bit on that. Um, the, 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 the part, I think, that a lot of our people who are excited don't realise is that <clears throat> getting a cap of £2.5 million right now of, of crab means that, you know, people probably will be lucky if they can get four weeks' work at the plant. The, the ultimate, of course, the ultimate goal and the hope was that there'd be enough work created that, you know, people would get in much more work than that and could really think about, you know, coming back and making their home here. Now, I thought what Mr. Russell had to say today, at well, one point he made, it sort of, you know, uh, caught my interest. <clears throat> and he mentioned the fact that if there was some kind of a, an understanding and approval by government that when this situation, which develop, has developed here and continues to develop here all over the province, where where the plants are are, are overflowing and there's a big de- there's a big delay for for the 
for the boat people and you know so the workers there have to work really long hours and everything if there was some kind of an agreement in the interim where they could say you know no problem uh, we can uh, we gladly will contact St Mary's plant or you know or this plant of Mr Ross alone or whatever and be able to uh, you know, gladly with our blessing, say, can you take this much? Can you take that much? Can you take whatever? It would be a, it would be a temporary help for sure. However, I think that down the road, I think that for the viability of this plant and to make it prosperous enough for both the employer and the employees, I, I, I only see this 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 2.5 million as a good beginning for our plant. And I would like to say, you know, if we have a man like this, this young man who is, is purchasing this plane has already put in over half a million dollars of his own private monies to, to get all the upgrades and improvements and repairs done, I think that the least we could expect is that he be met halfway and say, okay, um, you know, let's look at this. Not only will we grant a license back to St. Mary's, but we will also seriously look at, you know, how much this plant really needs to be able to have a great chance at providing the proper employment, which our, which our whole region badly needs. Um, I mean, we don't want to say too much because we don't want to be complainers or anything, and we certainly don't want to send the wrong message to government because... <laughs> That could work against us down the road, unfortunately. I also got to say that the licensing board, um, I never knew very much about this licensing board until I started really digging in and listening. But it seemed like they have a pretty dedicated, very knowledgeable group of people there who just don't make rash decisions, that they really weigh everything and they don't come out and make recommendations lightly. Uh, When they make recommendations, it's done, I think, with caution. And um, I can only imagine, you know, how they feel right now um, in the sense of what's after happening with some of their decisions being being overturned. So... um, that's just a thought, just a thought of mine, you know. I hopefully that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not coming across as a negative person here this morning because I'm not. I have, I have a lot of hope for our future, and all I'm asking is down the road that uh, these kind of things will be carefully considered, and that something, something much better is going to be, uh, going to be decided upon. Um, basically, that's what I have to say, say, Patty, this morning. And, of course, I have to say that, uh, that Mayor Steve Ryan, of course, was the leading force in, in working his butt off to, to try to get that licence. And uh, I, I'm glad that our neighbouring communities, uh, like myself and, and the Gaskers and, and, and St. And, uh, Vincent's, and even the, the, the out, outreach communities right from Portugal coast south to North Harbour, were all backing us. And, of course, the people were... You know, we saw how excited they were, how badly they wanted to get these plants working again with the with the rally we had. So, I just hope there's a better and brighter future. And I certainly commend uh, Mr. Matt Daly for taking this big chance. Um, it speaks volumes about the person he is. When you put your own money into something, you are going to work extra, extra hard to make it a success. And this is a great example. I don't know if there's any, any other time that we know of, any other person that we know of, that have gone that extra mile like he has gone. So I'd like to thank him for that, and I'd like to hope and pray that we have a better future ahead in St. Mary's. Appreciate the time, Sheila. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It's Mary Sheila Lee on Riverhead.
And so just because uh, we were talking about the bay, so the four communities that did not get their license approved, their application approved, was Ramia, Codroy, Bay Roberts, and O'Donnell's. Well, St. Mary's Bay. Will I take Jack here, Dave, or when we hit the break? Oh, let's take Jack on line number five. Jack, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. How are you? Great today. Thanks. How about you? Not too bad at all. Uh, there wasn't much of a announcement for seniors in in that uh, little pot of money that he tipped over there yesterday, was it? No, and like the rest of us, a little break at the pumps uh, until the beginning of next year anyway. A little break for a uh, one-time home heat rebate, depending on the amount of money the family makes. But uh, other than that, not particularly, no, sir. Yeah, and, and the heating is strictly for oil. Yeah, that's right. But what about the people that heat their homes with wood? Well, that's $220 a quart. Yeah, like Joyce uh, made the point earlier, nothing but nothing about that. Nor is there any attention given to someone who hates their home strictly with hydro. And even if you don't use furnace oil, but you get electricity to heat your home, it might indeed yeah. be generated, not necessarily always at a hydro station, but it could come from Holywood, <laughs> which is burning Bunker C out there. So, yeah. That's it for sure. And uh, just uh, everybody has all got their shorts and are not about the minimum wage. Uh, $15 they're complaining about but a senior if you break down what a senior gets per month you get little over well you get about $9.40 an hour so where's the logic into that does Fury forget that where we worked 40 years well, some of the monies flowing towards seniors, of course, is a federal pot of money, by and large. There are some seniors' benefits here for those who qualify. That's some 50,000 seniors, is my understanding. But a lot of the concerns that I would imagine seniors have, I'm not one yet, is what the federal government does with how they divvy up the money between the CPP and the old age security or guaranteed income supplement and other little pockets of cash. Yeah. Yeah, but, you know, government is government. I know federal and provincial, but... That doesn't change the, the, the carton of milk price for me or for you. So there's still no there's still no talk of helping seniors that worked all their life to keep these you know, to keep the young people when when I was working to keep the young people going and the society going and we get nothing for it when you need it. Things have changed drastically, haven't they? There used to be uh, I think the numbers people use is 50 years ago, there was four or maybe five young people in support of every senior. Now it's the other way around. I mean, there's one young person in support of five seniors. So the, the landscape has changed dramatically in this province in particular over the last 50 years. So I don't know where any additional supports might come. We've been talking about it as a listener. I'm sure you've heard, heard us talking about this a lot over the last X number of years. Yeah, I know, uh, Patty, everybody has talked a lot about it, but talk is cheap, and Fury don't seem to be listening. You know, perhaps you should go back to the job that he is trained for. And, you know, he obviously he is not a leader, and he is not uh, what you call a real good politician. I hope he's better as a doctor, and I think he is. 
We'll see what the future holds for the Premier. And of course, then people were mad at him for keeping his doctor or surgical credentials alive by doing some work in the field so that he can someday return immediately to being a doctor, whether he chooses to end his political career or the voters choose for him. But it's curious times. Jack, I wish you well. I thank you for your call this morning. You're quite welcome. Have a good day, Paddy. You too, Jack. All the best. Bye. Okay, you're welcome and goodbye. Uh, final break of the morning. When we come back, Elizabeth's in the queue. We'll probably have the final word. Don't go away. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Elizabeth. You're on the air. Hi, Paddy. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, good. Uh, I want to talk a bit about uh, the cost of living, right? Okay. My everything is going through the roof, and you, I don't know how the ones on social assistance can do it. They don't get no raise or nothing. Yeah, though I I do think that system probably has run its course. It doesn't work the way it's intended to work. I would imagine. Well, hopefully they're going to have a look at a couple of things: who's right, on social yeah. social assistance and why, and how it needs to be restructured. But I think some of that stuff is probably coming. Yeah, because, I mean, i got a son now living out in St. John's now, and I bring, uh, I mean, I can hardly do it myself. I bring that bit of groceries every now and then to him, right? Mm-hmm. And like I said, I'm on old age, and I'm paying rent, I'm paying light bill, and i got a phone bill to pay. And uh, for me to go to, to the supermarket, it costed me $40. Just for a little tiny bit of food, $40. Oh, no, I get enough, you know, what I, whatever I got, I'll spend it all. But I'm living with my son, right? Okay. And the two was, the two was ships in on the cab, so it costs us $40 just to go from, Taps, from Paradise to Tapsley Road. Boy. It's ridiculous. Yeah, are there any options beyond a taxi? Uh, n- not as I know, but there was a woman telling me now that uh, you get to call somebody or so. If I, I forget, I've forgotten who it was, right? To phone somebody and uh, give them a number and they'll come in and pick you up for nothing. I don't know what that service might be, but it certainly sounds better than $40 cab ride. That's right. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know how they're going to manage. And that y- guy has to come out here every month. Yeah, and you wonder where it all ends too, right? You know, sometimes when prices go up, they're a long while before they come back down. That's right, yeah. Yeah, well, okay then, Patty. Okay, Elizabeth, thank you for the call. Have a nice weekend. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, that'll be the trick, right, won't it? Is it's one thing to see some pressure valves offered by the government. Now, inflation at some point will be reined in and that's going to take a variety of different contributing factors and you know it'd be great if the especially on the federal level the politicians were a bit more honest about inflation so that we could have a better discussion about it as opposed to just catchphrase nonsense which is really taking our eye off the prize but anyway dave will we go out on the chiffons or what do you want to do here all right so once again, a uh, big, t- big appreciation for those who support the program, the callers, listeners, emailers, tweeters. You're all right. And we will indeed pick up this conversation again on Monday morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk Monday. Bye-bye.